So friends, if you were joining us online, something you should know is that it is hot in this sanctuary. That's not how I plan to open this sermon, but it's the opening that I have. And, you know, the, the letter to, or from Jude, rather, is a letter deeply rooted in a theology of God's grace, ultimately. And as an extension of God's grace, I want you to know that I have managed to edit my sermon down to a tight 15, okay? Say amen, somebody. And... Some of you are saying, Scott, you could do that every Sunday if you wanted to. I know, I know, I'm aware, I'm aware. So <clears throat> I will try to, to move as quickly as, as I can through this, because I do think that Jude's message at the end of the day is a fairly simple one. It's in keeping with this theme of little letters that we've been looking at during the month of July. And, and Jude's one of those texts that if you just sat down right now and read it, it would be hard to read. Um, because it is uh, deeply connected to its context and culture and time. And yet I think that just like any amount of scripture, there are themes and, and sort of undercurrents and underpinnings uh, that are deeper than simply the, the ink on the page uh, that can prove to be extremely helpful for us today. As I said, uh, this is a letter that ultimately is, is written to um, by this person who identifies themselves as Jude, the, the brother of James. Um, last week we talked about the letter from James. James, the brother of Jesus, supposedly, the, the leader of the Christian movement in Jerusalem in that early Christian movement era. And, and Jude identifies himself as James's brother, so also part of this holy family. And like James, a leader, uh, maybe not with quite the same status or stature as James, but a leader, a central leader in that early Christian movement in Jerusalem. And Jude is writing to a, an unidentified, you know, non-specific community or maybe even communities of Christian churches and, 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 and faithful communities throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, that had been planted already by the apostles, that had experienced some initial growth, and then now we're starting to experience some growing pains, and we're experiencing um, some disconnection and even division within their Christian community. And so Jude is attempting to sort of call them back into the heart of the original message they had received, to, to understand that, you know, this is part of what's to be expected when you're talking about building a growing movement. And when you're facing the question of what to do next, here might be some helpful things to think through. In the opening of the letter, and pardon me for my little bit of fuzz in my voice this morning, but part in the opening of the letter, Jude says this, Dear friends, I wanted very much to write to you concerning the, the salvation we share, but instead I must urge you to fight, or in other translations, I think an even more helpful word, to contend for the faith delivered once and for all to God's holy people, to contend for the faith. What Jude's going to go on to do is to call out some people that he sees as unhelpful presence in the Christian community. Their presence is unhelpful ultimately because of a theological difference that, that they share. But I, I find it interesting that initially Jude poses this language in a positive sense. He's not saying, I want you to throw them out or I want you to be against, but says, I want you to contend for the faith that we know together. Um, maybe it's simply because we're in uh, the, the opening stages of an election season, although I think it's just always an election season now, I guess. Um, I find election seasons to be fascinating and horrifying all at the same time. Um, one of the things that I always find interesting, though, because every politician will talk about what they're against, but the most successful leaders are, are the, those who can articulate what they are for, right? The kind of vision they have for uh, a people, 
It's one thing to say, I'm against this, 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 and this, and then you say, okay, well, what are you for? And then if there's crickets, that's not a compelling movement. That's not a compelling mission, right? And, and I see this as true not just in, in politics, but in, in any kind of movement, even in the church. Um, I think about this church specifically and how part of our vision statement is to be a constructive community. We're a creative, constructive, forward-leaning Christian community committed to becoming more like Jesus. Yes, I do know the five C's, do you? Um, and that word constructive I've always uh, appreciated because, you know, we're in a season right now of the Christian faith where deconstruction is a, is a reality for a lot of Christians, a lot of people of faith, just generally, quite honestly. In fact, we're going to talk about deconstruction a few weeks from now in, in worship. But, you know, a lot of times deconstruction initially is just about pulling everything apart. Uh, if you've never heard that word before, it's that sort of breaking down your faith, even to like an atomic level of like, I, I, what, what fundamentally do I believe or not believe? And sometimes it's much easier to deconstruct and to know very clearly what I don't believe. I do not believe this. I do not believe, I was, I inherited this faith, but I do not believe that. And then to open into the wide open spaces of, well, what do I believe? And I like that our church says clearly that we're a constructive community, a community that doesn't just seek to simply pull apart and to say what we're against. That is important at times. But to even more importantly, in my mind, to articulate what it is that we are for and what we are about. I think Jude would agree that that's ultimately going to be a more compelling mission and movement at the end of the day. The, the disagreement that has led to them needing to contend for their faith is rooted in this theology of grace. And grace is one of those extremely nebulous words that can be twisted and turned into all sorts of things, kind of like love, right? What does it mean to love someone? Well, you ask two different people, you're going to get 14 different ideas. Grace is similar. In these early Christian churches, there was a, a sort of minority theology that would develop at times where essentially it went like this. Well, okay, yeah, God's grace is abundant and universal, and it's been poured out, and Jesus was alive and died and rose again, and that means the work is done. And so now we're just kind of done, and we're saved, and isn't that great? And so now we can just kind of do whatever. Isn't that awesome? And invariably, the whatever would typically look like really corrupt lifestyles and uh, people that were about gaining wealth or, or gaining social status, and they weren't concerned with all that, you know, just righteousness, humility, garbage. That's all the stuff that you had to do before God poured God's grace out on you because, hey, it's grace, right? And I think there's something very specific and nuanced and important that the Apostle Paul and really the Apostle Jude here underscores that says, yes, and... Yes, God's grace is universal. Yes, God's grace is abundant. Yes, God's grace has been poured out. And that saving work has been done. And not just what are you saved from, not just what is God against. Yes, that means that that sin and that death and that unrighteousness and injustice, that is all part of the past work of God. But what are you saved for, right? What is that grace moving you for? What is that salvation leading you to, I think that's where Jude is trying to encourage these people to consider. It's not just what you've left behind. It's not just what is back here, but it's also what's in front of you. Because it turns out there is a lot of work to be done. I don't know about you. I don't feel like a finished product. Now, I don't know about you, but the world around me does not feel like it's fully baked, right? It feels like there's still more work to be done, and that would perhaps be the grace that Jude and Jesus and God is inviting us into. And so 
ultimately, there's this question at the heart of Jude of what do we do as Christians in our daily living? Like, how do we move through the world in our daily life and make those sometimes what feel really monumental decisions or honestly feel pretty mundane? How, how do we live faithfully? Maybe a modern language we could use is like, what's our ethic? Right? How do we, what's our framework and ethic for understanding how I ought to move through this world? Because if anything goes, that's not going to lead us necessarily to a great place because there's a lot of things that I think we would agree that a God of justice is against. And yet, what are we for? That's a trickier question to answer. Now, there's a lot of different ways to answer this question, and I don't seek to answer it perfectly for everybody in the room and online in 15 minutes today. But I will offer a tool, a simple tool, uh, that as Methodists we can use uh, and has been a part of our historical tradition uh, since the days of John Wesley. That's the old guy with white hair that started this movement back in the 1700s, right? And Wesley had these things that he called the three simple rules. And essentially, it was a way of understanding a framework, a very simplified and sometimes overly simplified, but a simplified framework for understanding a personal and social ethic. And I see, that, I see those three simple rules played out here in the letter of Jude. The first rule is this, do no harm. If you've been a part of a Methodist church before, maybe you've heard these words. Our first rule is do no harm. In the letter from Jude, Jude makes reference to uh, the people who are creating divisions and who are uh, misunderstanding and misusing the grace of God. He compares them to Cain and to Balaam and to Korah. Now, these are three characters from the Hebrew Bible that would have been very familiar to people like Jude. Jude is part of this early Christian movement that's sort of a Reformation movement within Judaism. So throughout his letter is all these references to that Jewish tradition. Cain and Balaam and Korah are maybe names that you have or have not heard. I imagine a lot of people are familiar with the name Cain, Cain and Abel, right, the brothers. And Cain's the one that killed his brother because he was jealous of the offering that he made to God. Cain chose this violent act, and it's sort of this symbolic story in a way uh, in the book of Genesis to express how violence has just been a part of the human condition from an early age, and we see that played out in the life of Cain and Abel. Balaam, if you went to a lot of Sunday school growing up and you remember the donkey, you might remember, right? Uh, Balaam famously had a talking donkey, uh, but Balaam's also mentioned in the book of Revelation. And Balaam was this character in Jude's day and age that had been sort of um, uh, been popularized within the Jewish tradition as this prophetic figure, but who led Israel in the wrong direction, who led Israel into sin and destruction rather than into righteousness and justice. Balaam's not the one that swung the sword, but Balaam made sure the swords were swinging. And then there's Korah. Korah was a figure back in Moses' story who led a rebellion of 250 men against Moses because he was dissatisfied with Moses' leadership. And it ended up with all of his men suffering death as a result. And so Jude is uplifting these three figures who had the ability, the, the possibility of living into righteousness but chose harm instead. Right? Cain could have made a, an offering to God but chose to murder his brother Instead, Balaam could have been that prophetic figure that led the people into righteousness and justice, but chose sin and destruction instead. Korah could have been a part of this sort of salvific work, liberating work that God was working through Moses, but chose rebellion and bloodshed instead. And so this first rule of do no harm rings through in these stories for me. 
Because so frequently, that, that is a, a really good place to start. Which ethic, which choice, which mode of being is going to create the least amount of harm for the people in this world that we all say theologically God loves, right? That the image of God is within each person. I think about um, this church and how we navigated through the COVID, the height of the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, right now you're probably wishing we were all worshiping at home once again. But uh, for a year, or really longer than a year, a year and a few months, um, we refrained from in-person worship, not because we didn't want to be around each other. This is a church that loves to be embodied in presence with one another. Um, it was because we wanted to do no harm. And because we listened to healthcare experts in our community who said, if you want to reduce harm, do this. And so we said, okay, there's a lot of other things that we care about, but that's going to be the first priority. We're going to start there. And so we made hard decisions, faithful decisions, born out of that ethic. I want to say also, though, do no harm is not an invitation to turn yourself into the martyr. Sometimes in Christian ethics, we, we can think that every hill is ours to die on and that we're meant to be doormats for Christ and that we're meant to make ourselves martyrs every single Monday. And that's simply not the case. Sometimes when you're processing through what it means to do no harm, I want you to place yourself in that equation as well, especially if you're not very likely to in normal situations. I was having coffee with a woman this past week who was explaining an ethical dilemma she had in her own life and it became clear to both of us that what she was doing was just taking on immeasurable harm to herself to try to protect some people around her that had no respect or dignity for her or the harm that she was taking on. And so in that situation, yeah, it was going to be hard to have some hard conversations. It was even going to potentially damage relationships that she had with them, but that was the way for her to try to reduce harm in the total equation. Am I making sense, friends? We start by doing no harm. So the question that I we'll try to begin with, that maybe we could try to begin with when facing a difficult question of living faithfully is how can I reduce harm? Secondly, as Methodists, we're called to do good, to do good. Now, that's real short and pithy, and that can mean a lot of different things. I think Jude helps to put some skin on that for us. Jude has this really poetic passage where he says, these people, the people who are creating problems in the early Christian church. These people are like jagged rocks, he says, just below the surface of the water, waiting to snag you when they join your love feasts. They feast with you without reverence. They care only for themselves. They are self-centered. He says, they are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, fruitless autumn trees, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the darkness of the underworld is reserved forever. Think about and, and feel those symbols that he lifts up, those, those metaphors. A love feast without reverence, clouds without rain, trees without fruit, impassable water, stars that shift in the sky and are destined for darkness. None of these things, as Jude describes them, are existing in the way that they were first intended, in a way that, importantly, what? Blesses others. He says they are only for themselves. Rain allows for crops. Fruit allows for food. Water allows for fishing and transportation. Stars allow for navigation and light in our journey. 
And so it's, important, it's not enough to simply do no harm as a person of faith. If that's the only rule you live your life by, that can lead to a, a life that is relatively immobile and, and unimpactful, right? If my only goal is to do no harm, that can make us so timid and unthreatening that we lose our good impact as well. And so it's important to consider how can I do good, but importantly to do good with an others-oriented, or Jude might say with a servant-hearted approach, to be the rain that allows for crops to grow, to be the fruit that the traveler needs, to be the water that carries the ship to its destination, to be the stars that light and navigate the way for someone else's wayward journey. And so the second question that we could ask ourselves might be this, what is the servant-hearted response? When I'm wondering how to faithfully live, how can I take that servant-hearted, others-oriented approach and to live in the way that Jude is describing rather poetically here. Do no harm, do good, and lastly we say we are called to stay in love with God. Now, that's real open-ended as well. But here I, I, I will turn to our friend Jude once again. He says, but, but you, dear friends, build each other up on the foundation of your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep each other in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will give you eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. To the one who is able to protect you from falling and to present you blameless and rejoicing before his glorious presence, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, belong glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Jude, leaning upon his Jewish tradition and heritage, is calling the early Christians in their infancy to remember. There's a, there's a theme throughout the Holy uh, Hebrew Bible that, that, that the people of Israel are constantly called to remember, remember. That's why stories are so important, because they help them to see their story this day in this moment as part of a longer continued narrative, to see their life woven in the midst of the story that God is telling through God's life and the, and the life of God's people. And so Jude leaves these hints throughout the letter when he's referencing stories of Moses and of Cain and of Korah and Balaam. And by calling the Christian believers to see themselves as beheld and beloved by God, and yet also in service of the same God of grace. To stay in love with God, in my mind, this week at least, is to see your stories as intertwined, to, to see your life through the lens of God's view. Because when I'm facing a moment that feels like a mountain, that feels like everything, if I'm able to step back for just a moment, and to see that this is a part of a longer story that God is telling. It can allow me to take that seriously, but to not let it break me. <laughs> because I can realize that it's not just about this Tuesday. God's been telling a story for a very long time, even through you and me. You have survived a lot up until this morning. Tomorrow morning's not going to end you. It's not going to break you. And it's going to do that less if we're able to step back and say, wow, let me look at this through the lens of how God is seeing my life played out, the lives through others. It's not easy to do. As Jude says, it's very easy to fall in that trap of self-mindedness or self-centeredness. But when we take that, not just others-oriented, but really God-sized view of our lives, we stay in love and relationship with God, that can somehow allow the decisions we face to feel more manageable by comparison. And so it's not an easy answer, and it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. But this week, as we consider how we could live faithfully in our lives, as we 
face decisions, whether they feel massive or minuscule. I wonder if we could follow three simple rules and if that could be a helpful framework for us as a people of faith, to do no harm, to do good, and to stay in love with God. May it ever be so. Amen.